Welcome to the last session in this series that we are simply calling Christmas Stories. And we have been looking at the Christmas event of the birth of Jesus through the eyes of different people. Now, last week, we talked about the Christmas story through Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And we discovered that your faith and your hope, it's not in vain. Even when it seems like God is not doing anything, there is an appointed time for things. And God has a plan. And you are a part of it. And then the first week, we talked about Matthew and the fact that Jesus just didn't just come for sinners, but he came from sinners. And so today, we're going to pick up on one of the people in Jesus' genealogy that Matthew mentions at the beginning of his gospel. Now, a little bit of review on Matthew. Matthew was a disciple that worked for the oppressing government that occupied Israel. Now, he was a Jew, but the Romans who had conquered and occupied Israel, they would actually recruit Jews to gather Roman taxes from Jews. And then they would allow them to put up a surcharge on it, and they could charge as much as they want. And so they would be very wealthy because they were collecting taxes from Rome, but they were also robbing their own people. So Matthew... Matthew would be absolutely hated by his own people. And what's interesting is, is that in the middle of being a tax collector, Jesus walks up to him and asks him to be a disciple. And I'm sure the other disciples were like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, talk about political debates. Jesus had also called another guy to be one of his disciples that was a zealot. And now zealots were extremely violent against their oppressive government. And so you've got somebody that's working for the oppressive government, and you've got somebody that is an extremist against the oppressive government. I imagine there are some dinner conversations that were pretty interesting at times. But Jesus was able to bring these two sides together, and they both laid down their political ideology and followed Jesus in his new kingdom and be one with his new mandate, which was the Great Commission. Now, Matthew, he was put in a category even under sinners because when they were described tax collectors, you know, you had super good people, you had neutral people, you had sinners, and then underneath that you had tax collectors. And this is where Matthew gets his context for how he tells the Christmas story. Now, there, there were four Gospels, as you remember. Two of those Gospels actually tell the birth story of Jesus. And one of those starts with the shepherds and the wise men and the angels and all of that that we're very familiar with. But Matthew, you know, he actually began his story in a very odd way. He actually began it with the genealogy of Jesus. And within this genealogy, Matthew, he actually pointed out the faults of the person that Jesus is actually mostly associated with in the Old Testament. Matthew actually slows down and he forces everybody reading to pause and think about the things that this man would not want you to think about when you think about his life. And Matthew, in his very over-the-top way, he says, remember, even though that this is the man that's mostly associated with Jesus, when it came with the, to his personal life, his morality, character, ethics, he was, at least in a season of his life, he was incredibly just an awful failure. And I believe that the reason that Matthew slows down and just points out some of the failures of this person that's associated so closely with Jesus is that he could relate to this man in some way. And I think some, sometimes maybe we have some things in our lives that might be able to relate with Matthew and this guy and their experiences as well. 
And so, you know, the Bible says we've all, we're all messed up, we've all sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And I know what it's like, and I think you know what it's like to be in a situation where you realize that you don't measure up. That if you and your eternity were to be held accountable for the things that you've done in your past, well, that's a pretty scary place to be. You see, sometimes we find ourselves trying to negotiate our sin with God, doing our best to try to measure up. And maybe as we look out you know, uh, into our future, maybe 10 years or maybe 10 hours ago, the issue is that our past has created scars on the inside of it. And as humans, we have the tendency to allow those memories, those past sins, to actually taint our thinking about ourselves and paint a picture of our future that maybe is not God's picture of our future. And I think the, the problem with a lot of us a lot of times is that we allow those past failures to actually taint the way that we think God sees us. And sometimes the way that we see ourselves and sometimes the way we see the world. And especially in the world that we live in today, you know, the world will never let you let go of anything you ever said or did in the past. They're always going to make it show up somehow and it's always going to haunt you. And, and we're in a culture where repentance is never good enough. And if we're not careful, that'll actually seep into our hearts. And I think that if anybody can relate to us in this manner, it would be Matthew, the tax collector. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. There he is. That's who we're going to be talking about today. Today we're going to talk about the Christmas story through the eyes of David, even though he lived 14 generations before Jesus. And actually we know, and Matthew would know, that Jesus is not the actually son of David, but he's like the great, 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 great grandson of David. And so this is the man whose name is mostly and closely associated with Jesus, David. But watch this. Look at how Matthew positions David in this genealogy. So he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And he goes through this long genealogy. And then he ends up, we're going to skip ahead, to Obed, the father of Jesse, and then Jesse, the father. Uh, and then he gives us a descriptor, King David. Now, King David was the father of Solomon, and then he should have just said, you know, Solomon was the father of, but he pauses, and he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, look, there are so many wonderful things you could say about David. He's the man mostly associated with, with Jesus, the Messiah, and yet he stops and says, oh, yeah, wait a minute, David, the, the father of, of Solomon, who, whose mother was another man's wife. And he like digs up all this dysfunction and this chapter in David's life that he wish he could erase. So why would Matthew draw our attention to King David's biggest failure? Well, here's the thing. Because that's the point of the story that he's about to tell in his gospel. And he reminds us that this man, you know, that was just, you know, the, the king and the, and the focal point of the, of the kingdom of Israel, that he was also in every sense of the word a failure as a leader, a friend, a father, and as a husband. And here was David's, here is David's story. 
It was a thousand years before Jesus, and here's what happens. The, the prophet Samuel um, goes to David, or the, God tells Samuel that he wants him to anoint a child king, and he goes to a, t- a town to find this child named Bethlehem. See, the first mention of Bethlehem was not the birth of Jesus. It was a thousand years before. And it just happened to be where a man named Jesse and his son David lived. So the prophet goes to Bethlehem in search of Jesse. He finds him. He says, hey, I want to get your sons here because I've got a very special message for one of your sons. So to make a long story short, they find David out in the field with the sheep. They bring him in, and God nudges Samuel and says, that's the one. So little David, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. You know, they anoint him as king, and David probably just blows his nose and runs back down to the sheep again. And so then, fast forward years and years later, because of a very dramatic series of events, little David, the shepherd boy, has grown up and becomes the second king of Israel. Years go by and David is in his palace, in his home, and he looks around and he thinks, Looks at, look at this place that I live, I'm so well taken pl- care of, and he looks out the window and he sees the tent. It was called the tabernacle. And this was essentially where God dwelled. And David, in his palace, he looks out there and he thinks, God, you know what, God can't be camping out in a tent when I live in this palace. If I live in a house, God should live in a house. So he, he wants to build a temple for the Lord. So he starts building or he starts raising money to build the temple. And at that point, God sent another prophet into his life with some good news and some bad news. And that's where we'll pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. So the, prophet's na- the second prophet's name was Nathan. And he comes to David. And this is the message that he gives him from God. He says, now then, this is the message. Now then, tell my servant David that this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. Verse 9. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Now. This is absolutely amazing because 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years before, David tells Nathan, or Nathan tells David that God's going to make his name the greatest name on earth. Now, let me ask you a little bit of a question. How many of you, before you heard any of this today, how many of you already knew about King David 3,000 years ago? Put it in the chat if you have already heard of King David. Well, here's the thing. That actually came true because as the chat is blowing up right now, we've all heard of King David. He says that your name will be great. You will be among the greatest men that will ever live. And that's exactly what happened. So skip to verse 11. And it says, the Lord declares to you that he will establish a house for you. In other words, meaning a generation that for generations to come, people will know your name, your house. And so, you know, when you die, when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will actually come from your own body and I will establish a king. So David, you're going to have a son that's going to be a king. That was Solomon. And then in verse 13, it says that he is the one that will build my house for my name. In other words, David, you don't get to build a temple, but your son will. And Solomon did build that famous temple, Solomon's temple. It says, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Next verse. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And watch this. This is very important, and this might help explain to some of us the dilemma of God's judgment versus his love. It says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings, inflicted by human hands. 
In other words, David, when you or the people that follow you, when they disobey me, I will punish them because I'm a good dad. I'm a good father, and I won't, go, won't let sin go unnoticed. But in verse 15, he says, my love, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. So then verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. An absolutely unconditional promise from God to King David. So David, you can't build the temple, but your temple, I mean your throne, your lineage will be established forever. And that that was the promise that he gave to David. And then four chapters later in the same book, David actually tests the patience of God in the most extreme ways imaginable. Four chapters later, we're introduced to that story in the life of David that we all probably know bits and pieces of, but it's a story where he meets Bathsheba. And if you know this story, I'm gonna tell it very quickly. He's on his roof, he looks down, he sees this beautiful woman. And he asks his servant, who's that? They say, that's Uriah's wife, your general's wife. Well, where's Uriah? Well, he's out fighting. Well, I'd like to talk with his wife. Well, they did more than talk. And then they find out later that she is pregnant with his child. So David's got a mess to deal with. So he calls for Uriah to come in off the battlefield. They have this meeting. And when they finish, he says, well, since you're already in the city, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? You know, and then tomorrow you can go back out to the battlefield. So the next morning, he finds out Uriah didn't go home. He spent the night outside the king's door. And, and so why didn't you, he asked him, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, how can I spend time in the comforts of my home when my men are still on the battlefield? So David says, all right, we'll just stay one more night. So the next night, he gets him good and drunk, and he tells him again, go home, spend the night with your wife, and then the next day you can go back to your men. So once again, David wakes up the next morning and realizes that Uriah has stayed there outside of his gate. So he asks him again, why didn't you go home? And Uriah once again says, how do I go home when my men are bleeding and dying on the battlefield? At which point in the story, you would think that God would say, all right, David, you're out. I think we are going to make Uriah king because he's the only guy that's righteous in this story right now. But the thing is, is that God had made an unconditional promise to David and to those that would follow him. So David does something that you can't even imagine at this point. David, in the privacy of his own office, he writes a message to Joab. Now, Joab is the commander of the battlefield. He's actually Uriah's superior on the battlefield. So David writes him, he says, tomorrow in battle, I want you to put Uriah front and center. And then in the heat of battle, I want you to withdraw everybody and leave him exposed. And so Joab would understand this was a death sentence for Uriah. So David sends this note by Uriah to Joab. He delivers his own death sentence unknowingly. Joab gets the message, he obeys the king, and the next day, Uriah is killed. So the message gets back to Bathsheba and David. She mourns the loss of her husband, and then David marries her. And from his perspective, he's covered everything. His sin has been covered over. But God knew. And here's what the Bible tells us in chapter 11, verse 27. It says, but the thing that David has done was evil in the sight of God, of the Lord. And now, God had to make a decision here. 
You know, he had to decide, do I retract my promise? I said it was unconditional, but I mean, in light of these new circumstances, in light of David's awful, awful sin, is this a promise I can go back on? Do I have to keep it? And Nathan the prophet once again comes to David. He confronts him. And he says, David, you have done evil. You have sinned in the eyes of the Lord. And the Bible says that David went to the tabernacle, fell down to the altar, and confessed his sin. In fact, you can read it. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote when he recognized this particular sin. And he doesn't just say, oh, well, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. He says, I sin before you, God, and I beg your forgiveness. And God decides to forgive David of his sin. And on a leadership level, on a personal level, on a family level, the consequences for his sin would be absolutely brutal. His whole family fell apart. His family went to war with each other. His famous son murdered his other son. His favorite general murdered his favorite son. He had to move out of the palace while his son humiliated him in a way that you couldn't even imagine unless you read the story for yourself. But throughout the chaos, throughout the bloodshed, that incredibly personal disaster for David, even in the middle of it, God never withdrew his promise. You know, the, per, the punishment was brutal, but his promise was eternal. See, but 999 years later, a man in the line of, J, of, of, of David with his pregnant wife, Mary, made their way to the city of Bethlehem, which by that time would be known as the city of David. And there she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David. Because God keeps his promises. Now, watch this. If you're Matthew and you're telling the story and you're the ex-tax collector and you know, look, if I ever have to go to God based upon my own personal righteousness, I'll never make it. You know, let's say you're Matthew and you're getting ready to tell the greatest story ever told of a savior coming into the world and dying in pain for all men's, all men's sins so that all men, women, children could come to God on the basis of what God had done for them instead of what they have done themselves. You see, this is the part of the story that underscores the whole New Testament, that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And when God makes his promise, even the most heinous sin in the world cannot force God to go back on his promise. You see, Matthew is getting ready to tell a story of God making a new promise that was different than the promise made to David. It wasn't a promise made to an individual, but a promise made to everybody in the whole world. And when Jesus died on that cross and he shed his blood, it was an establishment of a brand new covenant, a brand new promise between God and all mankind. And just like God kept his promise to David in the same way, God keeps his promise to all of us when he sent his son. And the angel said it better than anybody else. In the book of Luke, where we find the other record of the Christmas story, here's how Luke records it. Chapter 2, verse 10. The angel says, and you've heard this a thousand times, but now listen to it in the context that we just walked through. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The good people, the bad people, the in-between people, the people that think that they're better than other people, the people that think that they don't even have a chance, or maybe the people that think that they have a chance, but they, but, but they think they do because they've been to confession or mass or they've given a bunch of money or they serve. 
And, you know, well, certainly God's got to take me seriously because of all the stuff I've done. Yes, even that group, as well as the group that says, hey, look, if I got to earn my way, I got no hope because my life is about as bad as David's. And this angel says, I've got good news for all the people. God is making a promise to all people. And here it is. In the town of, what? In the town of David. Here's what I hope for all of us for the rest of our lives. Every Christmas, whether it be in the story being told or a pageant, or you just hear the phrase, the town of David, that when you hear it quoted or, or, or sang, I hope that it will be a reminder for the rest of your life of the promise that God made to David. Not only that, but also the promise that God made to you. Even though David was unfaithful, you know, and he leveraged his power for his own gain, he put another woman's husband to death. But in the town of David, a savior has been born to, to all mankind. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And then go to verse 13. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Look, God promised you, he promised me peace because of the Savior. And the only way that you can have peace with God is for God to remove the obstacle to your peace. And you know what that is? That's our sin. The reason a lot of us don't have peace with God is because we're continuing to negotiate our sin. You know, well, I'm not that bad, or I'll do better, or I didn't know, or my mama did this to me, or I was raised in a bad home. Your whole interaction with God is to negotiate your sin. And listen, you'll never have peace with God as long as you negotiate your sin. The only way you can be at peace with God is to remove your sin. And here's the thing, and this is what Christmas is all about, that Jesus came to remove your sin so that you could have peace. I mean, you may, you may be a Christian, you may have asked Jesus to come into your life, been baptized, but you still don't have peace with God because you're negotiating your relationship with God through your failures, through your sin. And you can't have peace with God. You can't have the promise of Christmas until the obstacle to peace has been removed, and that's sin. And the promise of Christmas is that God sent Jesus to remove, once and for all, sin. So that you could come to God, not on the basis of what you have or have not done, but on the basis on what He has done for you. And Matthew, the tax collector, who experienced that firsthand and reviewed all that Old Testament history and realized, wow, this is what God's been doing all along. But now, through Christ, the final penalty of sin has actually been done away with because the blood of Jesus, through his blood, a new contract and a new promise has been made. Because just as the promise to David was unconditional, the promise to us is also unconditional. You, me, we can have peace with God in spite of ourselves, no matter what happens. And you may say, well, yeah, but, you know, that, that'd be great, Micah, but that sounds so one-sided and it feels like, you know, like it's one-sided toward me and I don't deserve that. Exactly. Well, but that seems so unfair because I'm not a good person. It seems like I'm getting the best end of this deal. Exactly. Well, what if I go off and I sin? Well, look, sin always has a consequence. In fact, most sin has its own consequence built in. 
But this isn't about that. This is about you having continued peace with God. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, another religion, as long as you're trying to negotiate your sin and negotiate your goodness with God, you'll never, ever have peace. Because the promise of Christmas is peace on earth. And it only comes when we fully embrace the promise of the gift of forgiveness. Not through our efforts or anything that we could do or our promises, but through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, have you put this away forever? Are you still coming to God with the past weekend in mind or the past 10 minutes in mind? You know, or with your goodness in mind? Are we somehow trying to leverage, oh, well, but I'm doing better. Can we put this away once and for all? Because as long as we are negotiating with our sin, we are gonna have a tendency to be dragged right back in to that sin over and over. It, it just doesn't work. And the promise of Christmas is peace for all mankind and only for those that are willing to embrace the price of peace, which is the price of your Savior's, Savior's life. And so have you made that exchange? Have you totally abandoned yourself for God? Have there ever been a time in your life where you just said, God, look, this is new. I'm just learning. I'm sure I'll mess up. But I believe, that, and I'm convinced in my life and in my heart, and I want it to impact my heart and my emotions, but beyond any of that, I believe as much as I can believe that you died for me and my sin, that the obstacle to your peace has been removed. And you, you, you know, you could pray, God, just as you kept your promise to David, I believe you're the promise keeper and you'll keep your promise.